Well, hey, uh, you don't know me from, um, from high school, but when I was in high school, I was a different dude. I was uh, diagnosed with something pretty severe, uh, maybe even life-threatening, you could say. Uh, it wasn't a doctor who discovered this. It was actually my friends and family who made the discovery. They diagnosed me with what's called uh, know-it-all syndrome. It started at a fairly young age, and then it reached its peak, it climaxed probably during my teenage years. Uh, I clearly didn't know everything. That was evident by my grade point average, which was pretty miserable, and by the countless foolish decisions I made. But I really did think at the time that I knew better than everyone else. I remember even sitting in an algebra class one day, and the syndrome kicked in. And so I raised my hand like the punk kid that I was, and I said, man, this class is stupid. And I told the teacher, I said, how, how is this even practical? How, how am I going to use this in life? And I'll never forget what my teacher said. He said, Dom, hey, studying math is as practical as it gets. And I said, yeah, how? And he said, well, math helps you make value judgments. You'll always have a right and left column. You'll have your assets, your pros, and you'll have your deficits, your cons. It's going to be that way with your time, with your money, with your future. You better know how to make value assessments. And it's also going to help you determine what's right and wrong. There's always right and wrong answers. So Dom, if you don't want to learn how to solve problems, if you can't make accurate value judgments, and you don't want to discover what's true from what's false, then go ahead, drop the class. Uh, okay. <laughs> and I remember being put in my place that day because he was, he was right. He was absolutely right. Nowhere is the ability to make value judgments, to discern between right and wrong, to comprehend what's true. Nowhere is it more important than when it comes to our spiritual lives. The scriptures, they point to a treasure that is infinitely valuable. It's not something, but it's someone. We sang about them. The Bible tells us that the greatest treasure that we can pursue, the greatest treasure that we can possess, is Jesus Christ. And I'm convinced that when we understand Christ's incalculable worth, when we get a grasp of that, when we get a vision of it, we'll do whatever it takes to know Him. In our passage of Scripture this morning, we're going to get a glimpse into a man's life who understood the surpassing value of knowing Christ. That man is the Apostle Paul. Paul used to be a man who was hostile to Christ and to Christ's followers, but then he had a vision of Jesus. He saw Jesus face to face, and he was changed. He was changed forever. His whole outlook, his whole approach to life was transformed by seeing Christ And after his conversion, what we see in the Apostle Paul is a continual display of the value and the worth of Jesus Christ. He made it his life's ambition to know him, to know him personally, to know him intimately. So I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 1 through 3. Hey, and if you're a Spanish speaker, we, we, uh, we have a Spanish version, so you go back to the the back there, and they'll be happy to give you some headsets so you can hear this message in Spanish. But Philippians chapter 3, 
verses 1 through 11. Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself might have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. Of the people of Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But... Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Would you join me as we pray? Oh Lord, we are desperate this morning. I am desperate this morning for you to Help us see Christ and help, him, help us to see him clearly. And so, Lord, may you enlighten our hearts. May you take that Windex and squeegee and clear out the guck that prevents us from seeing Christ for who he truly is. He is infinitely valuable. Help us to delight in that, to know that this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, Paul is going to provide us with three Proofs that demonstrate that Jesus is supremely valuable. Three proofs that demonstrate that Jesus is supremely valuable. You know Jesus is supremely valuable when, one, you regard your former gains as loss. Regard your former gains as loss. Number two, when you renounce all gains as loss. And then finally, when you resolve to know Christ at any cost. That's our outline for this morning. Now, you're familiar with the Apostle Paul, his life, his conversion. When we open up to Acts chapter 9, we see his conversion. We read the details surrounding Christ's call in Paul's life. But in our text here this morning, what we see is a kind of a behind-the-scenes glimpse into what Paul was thinking. We see his heart in this text. And the hinge of the passage is found in verse 7. Take a look at that. Verse 7, But whatever gain I had... I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And so Saul, he walks through the corridor of verse 7, and he comes out the other side as Paul. There was a great transaction that took place, a great exchange that happened. Saul and everything that he found his identity in, it's gone. He turned his back on everything for the sake of possessing Christ. 
which he says now is his greatest gain. So what I want to do is I want to set the stage at looking at the first six verses to make sense of what Paul really gave up and why he gave those things up. Look with me at verse 1. It says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, if you've haven't been in the book of Philippians for a while, i got to remind you that Paul's aim in this short epistle is to help the Philippians experience joy. Now, that's one of the main themes of the book of Philippians is this idea of joy. But more than that, Paul is laboring to help the Philippian church see where joy comes from. Joy is great, but there's a reason for joy. Joy is simply the byproduct of a greater reality. Joy comes from knowing Christ. That's where joy comes from, from experiencing his gospel. Christ is the reason for our joy. He's the cause of joy. And that's why he can write from a jail cell and say rejoice. How can this guy be thinking about joy while he's in jail? Well, because Paul knew he was free. Paul knew that he was no longer a prisoner of sin, no longer a prisoner of death and all the consequences that come along with it. No, Paul was a free man in prison. And that's why he could command the Philippians to have joy. And if you remember, the Philippian church, they're suffering. The Philippian church, they're they're poor. They're afflicted. And without hesitation, Paul is going to command them to rejoice. Why? Because no matter what kind of trial they're facing, no matter what the difficulty, those who know Christ will always have a reason to rejoice. That's what it means to know him. We have sufficient, we have substantial reason to rejoice. We don't just create this. It's the reality of knowing Christ that we can have joy, even in the most painful and difficult circumstances. And this is the one thing that Paul doesn't want this beloved church to lose sight of. He he doesn't want them to make a bad exchange. And so that's why we see this serious warning. Look what he says. He says, to write the same things to you, it's no trouble to me, And it is safe for you. See, Paul has a serious spiritual concern for these these beloved um, church members. They were in jeopardy of making a horrible mistake. For for trading what they had in diamonds for dirt. For trading life for death. Well, what what was Paul warning them against? Look at verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. You notice the repetition there. Three times, Paul is commanding, look out. So it's not just a casual glance. No, the word is blepo. It means pay careful attention to this. Be on guard. Be on alert of the dangers. Why? Because these dogs, these evildoers, these mutilators of the flesh, they were a serious threat to the Philippians' joy. They were a serious threat to their understanding of Christ. They were a serious threat to their knowledge of Christ. And so Paul says, watch out for these guys. Watch out for them. Be aware. Now, most commentators, when we think about those three, guys, those three uh, categories, they say that Paul is referring to Judaizers. Right? Who are the Judaizers? They were Jews who believed. They believed in Jesus. That's great. But they also taught it was necessary to conform to certain Old Testament laws and and regulations. They specifically taught that Gentiles who were coming into the church, that were being converted, that they must perform a rite of circumcision. They would say, yes, you must believe in Christ. And 
you must be circumcised. For Paul, this meant that they had another gospel, which is really no other gospel. That's not good news. Christ plus something else is not the gospel at all. And anyone who teaches that Christ's work is not sufficient to pay for the penalty of sins is not teaching the true and pure gospel. It's Christ and Christ alone that is the basis of our salvation. So look what he says in verse 3. He says, We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. Paul taught that those who come to Christ by faith, they don't need external ceremonial activities. You can't merit salvation that way. And he highlights that in several of his epistles, Galatians being one of the strongest ones. The truly circumcised are those whom the Lord calls and changes, and he does that inwardly. It's a circumcision of the heart. Romans 3.30 says this, God is the one who will justify the, un, the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So the believer's confidence should never, ever come from the flesh, from some outward, external, ritual, or act of obedience. You can't add anything to Christ's death on the cross. That is sufficient. If you add to Christ then he can't be supremely valuable. Does that make sense? If you add to him, then he's not supremely valuable. He needs to be supremely valuable all by himself. And he is. So when we add to Christ, we actually detract from his value. And that's why Paul shares his testimony here. He's going to show us the total bankruptcy of all of his moral and religious achievements. All those things that he loved and considered as his assets, actually proved to be deficits. Boasting in his self-righteous efforts didn't display the supreme value of Christ. In fact, all it did was undermine it. It was only when Paul regarded his former gains as loss that he began to demonstrate that Jesus was actually supremely valuable. So that's our first point. You prove that Christ is supremely valuable when you regard your former gain as loss. We show the worth of Christ. We put that on display when we stop regarding our own righteousness as valuable. And Paul illustrates that for us here in the following verses. Why it is foolish to trust in anything other than Jesus. Look at verse 4. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have far more. And so Paul says, look, you think you can boast? You think your circumcision is some, some big deal? I mean, come on, take a look at my life. You think you can boast? Look, look at my life. Look at all of my religious efforts. If you think by being a good person, by being sincere, by being passionate, if that could earn you favor with Christ, well, what about me? Where does that put me? A couple weeks ago, Scott said that Martin Luther said if anyone could work their way into heaven, it was him. And I say, well, maybe. But Martin Luther was a lightweight compared to the Apostle Paul. There was no one during his day or our day that can hold up to the standards of the Apostle Paul. So what does he say here? Look at verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day. Literally, he says, look, I'm an eighth dayer. Those are bragging rights there. I wasn't a convert to Judaism. I'm not some pagan proselyte. 
No, I was born a Jew. In fact, my obedience started with my parents. I was born into obedience and law-keeping. And I'm of the people of Israel. This was his ethnic identity. He's a pure blood. He's from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All of God's promises and blessings were his. But he's also from the tribe of Benjamin. So not only can he boast about being the chosen people, but in addition to that, he could trace his lineage back to one of the two best tribes that Israel knew. And he says this, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I don't know if you guys know this, but I'm actually Mexican. But I wouldn't say I was a Mexican of Mexicans. People tell me, I wasn't born in Mexico. I don't speak Spanish. My wife, who's Caucasian, she, she speaks better Spanish than I do. That's what Paul's saying. He said, look, many of these Judaizers, they were Hebrews, but they're only Hebrews on the surface. Underneath, they're actually Greek. They're Hellenized. Hebrew by race, but Greek by culture. But not Paul. Paul's a pure breed, and only a select few could claim the kind of racial and cultural purity that the Apostle Paul had. So so Paul makes an appeal to his ethnicity in verse 5, and those things he really didn't have control over, right? He's kind of born into that. So thank you, Mom and Dad, for all those rights. But the next three boasts are his own. Look at the text. He says, you think my Jewish heritage is impressive? Check this out. As to the law, a Pharisee. He comes from the greatest school of Bible scholars and law keepers. The Pharisees went even beyond what was written and created their own laws and tried to keep those too. He says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. I was so zealous for Judaism that I was violently committed to putting down all Christ followers. And as to righteousness under the law, Paul says, blameless, blameless. This is what it looked like from a human perspective as people looked at Paul's life. His decorated pharisaicalism, they thought, man, this guy is just faultless. He's perfect. Now, this is a big deal. These are great achievements that the Apostle Paul is putting on his resume. And in the eyes of the Jews, the Apostle Paul was the greatest to be admired. Everything he did in his life was ordered around law-keeping. He invested his entire life in creating his own righteousness. But look, that didn't bring him closer to God. It didn't get him closer to God. In fact, it only created more separation. And when we make the same kind of boast in our own achievements, we're blinded to Christ's true value. So you might say, well, I don't have a resume like like Paul, but you have a resume, no doubt. You've been putting things on your resume. I know, like Paul, a lot of you can boast a godly heritage. I heard about that in my parenting class. Some of you have come from a long line of believers. You're a third, fourth generation Christian. Hey, praise God for that. But that can't earn you Christ. You've never missed a Sunday morning worship service. Even when your kids are sick, you still come to worship service. You have perfect attendance in Scott Booker's equipping class. You, you check off every day for your Bible in the reading plan. You've memorized the book of James. You share the gospel with all your neighbors. That is fantastic. But guess what? You don't earn Christ that way. Maybe you, uh, you're unstained by the world. You've heard that motto. I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or run with girls who do. You've never even said a cuss word. 
You don't listen to secular music. And except for the passion of Christ, you've never even watched an R-rated movie. And you say, that won't earn you Christ. Some of you, when I pulled up here, I saw a lot of this. You're, you're from the Master's University. See that on the back of your plate. You've sat under John MacArthur's teaching. But guess what? When you come face to face with God, you can't claim John MacArthur or grace to you. You can't earn Christ that way. No matter how meticulously we obey God's commands, no matter how great we think our intentions are, we cannot come to Christ on our own righteousness. Why? Why can't we do that? Because in order to be right with God, His standard is what? It's perfection. Nothing less. That is why Paul says in verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. What we need is Jesus. That's what we need. He is our only hope. You know, there are countless people in the world who think that they're earning their way to heaven. I was having a conversation with a guy at the gym a couple weeks ago. And uh, he asked me, hey, how things are going? And I said, oh, I just did a, a memorial service for my aunt. And he said, wow, how did that go? What would you say? I said, oh, you want to know what I, I said? And so I told him. I basically gave him my whole message. And I thought I was very clear and compelling with the gospel. I gave him basically the whole message. And after I told him about all the things that I communicated, this is what he said. He said, well, I don't go to church, but I know I'm a good person. And that just kind of puzzled me. How did you come to that after what I said? So maybe I wasn't clear enough. So I looked at him. I said, no, 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 my man, listen. The only way that we can be forgiven, the only way that we can be made right with God is if we acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy, if we trust Christ and Christ alone, we need His righteousness to be made right with God. And I was very, very clear. And you know what he did? It would have been sweet if he dropped down on his knees and repented, but that made him feel super uncomfortable, and he changed the subject. Man, it's heartbreaking because the reality is by the time I'm done with my message, 6,316 people will come face-to-face with God. 6,000 316 people die in an hour. What are they going to say to God? What are they going to offer to Him? God, I did my very best. Please let me into heaven. I tried my hardest. It's not an exaggeration to say that most people who enter eternity today are hoping. They're just hoping that somehow their good deeds will outweigh their bad deeds. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not about doing our best. It's not about giving our best effort. It's not about your greatest intentions. The gospel is that your very best will never, ever be good enough. If you try to earn your way to to heaven, you'll end up with a one-way ticket to hell. That's just the reality. That's what the Scriptures teach. We need something infinitely greater than our own righteousness to commend us to God. We need the righteousness of Christ. That is the only acceptable currency. So we prove that Christ is supremely valuable when we regard all of our former gains, religious, moral achievements, as loss. Now secondly, 
we prove Christ as supremely valuable when we regard not just our former gains as loss, but when we renounce all gains as loss. Paul begins in verse 8, he says, Indeed, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now that word indeed, well, I don't say indeed unless I want to sound smart. Um, that's not a good translation. The Greek, there's five particles and they're smashed together. Well, what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to make the strongest point he possibly can. And so if we look in our modern language, what he's saying is, look, way, 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 way beyond anything that I can count as gain, it doesn't come close to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. See, this whole idea of counting, it implies serious mental consideration. Paul had to make a value judgment. See, on one side, his assets column, he has all of his moral achievements. He's got everything that he values above Christ. And then you look at Christ. And you have to weigh the two. Which one is more valuable? Which one will reap the most benefit? Which one will be the most satisfying? And so he has to consider this. Jesus said very clearly, Matthew 16, 26. You're familiar with this verse. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but what? But forfeits his soul. And you say, well, that's a no-brainer. Who in the world would want to lose their own soul over possessions? Well, we know someone who did from the Scriptures, don't we? The rich young ruler. I mean, he didn't consider Jesus more valuable than all that he possessed. Jesus made that young man the greatest offer in the world. And what do we read about him? In that young man's estimation, the offer wasn't good enough. Think about that. Jesus wasn't good enough to that man. And so the Bible tells us that he walked away, and not just walked away, but he walked away sad. The most wonderful and valuable treasure is standing right in front of him, offering him eternal life, and he turns his back on him because he made a miserable miscalculation. And I think that decision may have cost him his very soul. That is so, so tragic. Clinging to possessions, clinging to comforts, clinging to things that give us significance. We don't value Christ supremely when we're holding on to stuff. We hold on to stuff we think it's going to satisfy, but it's not. Now what makes Him look supremely valuable is when we see Him for the treasure that He is and we're willing to walk away from everything to have Him. Forsake it all. And that's what we see in Matthew 13. Right? Two men, one stumbling upon a treasure, the other searching for a pearl of great price. And what happens when they discover the treasure? The Scriptures tell us that they joyfully counted everything else as loss to obtain their new and greater treasure. Both men willingly, happily give up everything once they found something of unsurpassed value. And the point of the parables is very clear. Jesus is infinitely valuable. He's the, he's the point of the parables. When we see Him as the priceless treasure that He is, and we understand that we could have Him for ourselves, 
we can possess him, then everything else is regarded as loss. Look at the second part of verse 8. It says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now when Paul says that he suffered the loss of all things, it doesn't mean that he suffered reluctantly. It's like it wasn't something that he really didn't want to do, but he just did anyway. He suffered the loss. My kids do this. They do this quite often. We go over someone's house and they get a get to play with a brand new toy, but it's time to go. So, hey, Kyla, Ty, we got to put the toy away and we got to go. They'll do it, but they do it reluctantly. And I mean, if they could, they'd take that thing with them, wouldn't they? That's not Paul's attitude here. He doesn't want to hold on to his loss. He joyfully suffers the loss. Make no mistake, there is pain involved when we lose things. But the pain is worth it. The pain is worth it. Because we realize that everything else is rubbish compared to Christ. I don't use the word rubbish either. It's a rubbish. It's a little English word. I think it's a little too soft. The Lord inspired the Apostle Paul to use a very strong and vulgar word. And that's exactly what God thinks of our righteousness. It's dung. Feces. There's other words we won't say. But that's what God intended to communicate. Isaiah 64, 6, all of our righteous deeds are as polluted rags. See, now that Paul realizes the true value of Christ, he regards everything else in life that keeps him from Christ as worthless. His Judaism, his religious respectability, his career, all the praise that he was getting from men, his freedoms, his comfort, even his own life, he regards it all as loss when compared to knowing Christ. He's renounced his rights to everything he is and everything he has because knowing Christ is of supreme value. You know, when I was 20 years old, I had uh, lots of treasures in my heart. I was looking forward to July 3rd, my birthday, when I turned 21, because I just wanted to buy beer on my own. That, that's where I was at at 20 years old before I knew Christ. All I cared about was indulging in the lust of my flesh. All I cared about was fulfilling my sinful desires. But then I heard the gospel. Not the first time. Probably the one millionth time. But it just hit me. And Christ met me. And my life was completely transformed. And I remember sitting in my room one day. And just looking at all the junk in my room, I had so much junk in there. So many things that were keeping me from Christ. So many things that were blinding my eyes. And I just got mad. I was so upset at all the stuff that had been keeping me from Christ. So I got two big, black, hefty trash bags. And I just started getting rid of everything. Going to my closet, getting all my dirty magazines. Throw those away. Get the dirty movies. Throw that, get all the drugs. Throw that away. All my godless music that I was listening to, threw all that away. All my paraphernalia, all my drug stuff, just got rid of it all. I filled up my two trash bags. My room was like totally redecorated by the time I was done. My mom looked at me, what are you doing? You lost your mind? No. All this stuff was keeping me from Christ. I have to get rid of it. If something is going to keep me from knowing him, it's gone. It's trash. 
And so I gave up everything, all the things that I valued, everything I found significance in. I wanted to be popular. I wanted to be the best athlete. I wanted to be the greatest, you know, the hippest guy. None of that stuff mattered to me anymore because of Jesus Christ. And so it was for my joy that I trashed everything. I didn't value that anymore. Spurgeon said of Paul in this verse, he said, Paul speaks of Christ here as though he felt that Christ was the very climax of his desire, the very summit of his ambition. If he might but get Christ, he would be perfectly satisfied. But if he could not get him, whatever else he might have, he would still remain unblessed. And for the first time, I had that same experience, that same feeling that I just wanted Jesus. And that's all. And I would be happy with just Jesus. And if I didn't get Christ, then I really didn't have anything. Like Paul in verse 9, I wanted to be found in Him. Found in Him. Paul uses that over 150 times in his letters. That the believer's identity is in Christ. In Him. It's positional. If we're in Christ... That means we're justified before God. And there's no better place to be. But if you're not in, you're what? You're out. If we're not found in Him, then we can never stand before Him. I remember one day coming back to my car. This is when we lived in Monterey, where you can't park very long in certain places because you get tickets. So I put money in the meter. I made sure I had enough money in the meter. But I came back to my car and I saw that dreaded envelope on my windshield. I said, oh man, come on, I don't want a ticket. So I go over there and I I have enough time on the meter. What's the big deal? I looked, I park in the red. No. And so I'm looking. I pull out the, the ticket and it says that I didn't park between the lines. So I look, park between, I took a picture of it. And I saw the, the, the lady who was given tickets, so I chased, chased her down. And I said, look, look at my car. I'm like 99% inside the lines. And she said, look, if you didn't want a ticket, you had to be all the way in. I said, yikes. Wow. Thank you, city of Monterey. You think God is going to allow anyone to be partially in? You think you could be mostly in, 99% in? No, we need to be found completely in Christ. That is our only covering. That is our only righteousness. It's not 99% Christ and some of your righteousness. It's all or nothing. Not having a righteousness of my own, Paul says, that comes from the law. Paul had to look outside himself for this righteousness. It had to come from somewhere else because we can't meet God's perfect and holy standards. See, in man's eyes, Paul had a great reputation. In man's eyes, Paul might might have been blameless, but not in God's. James tells us in James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, what? He's guilty of it all. So the righteousness that Paul needed was that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The only way that we're going to be able to stand before a holy and righteous God is if we've experienced this great exchange. Our sin, all of our polluted righteousness, 
is placed on Christ and it's condemned on the cross. And then Christ, in all of his perfect righteousness and law-keeping and obedience, it's imputed to us. And now we're found in him, covered by his blood. So that when God looks at us, he doesn't see us. But he looks at each of you and he sees Jesus' perfect righteousness. That's what it means to be found in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If we could, if we could be made right with God on any other basis, then we shame the cross of Christ. It's like a slap in the face. Paul says in Galatians 2.21, For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He died needlessly. The cross would have been completely unnecessary, and God would have been a complete moron if we can get to heaven by our own righteousness. No, righteousness, it comes from God. In 1 Corinthians 1.30-31, Paul says, It is from Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We glory in the Lord. It's all his doing. It's all his work. So we show Christ to be supremely valuable when, one, we regard our former gains as loss, but more than that, when we renounce all of our gains as loss. And now thirdly, we show Christ as supremely valuable when we resolve to know Christ at any cost. Look at verse 10. Paul says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, when, when Paul says that he wants to know Christ, He's not just talking about knowing simple facts. This is a personal knowledge. I can tell you a lot about Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant is one of my favorite basketball players. I'm not going to even look at Sarah over there. Kobe Bryant, man, we kind of grew up together. Graduated from Lower Marion High School. Uh, Graduated the same year, 1996. He was drafted 13th overall by the Charlotte Hornets at the time got traded to the best team in the world, the Los Angeles Lakers. He's a five-time NBA champion. He's a two-time scoring leader. He had 81 points in one game, the second behind Wilt Chamberlain's 100 points. And I can go on and on and on about Kobe Bryant. I actually had a friend who played with him, won a championship with him in 2001. I know a lot of facts about Kobe. I don't know the guy. He doesn't know me. He's never Googled me before. That's not a relationship. That's not a relationship. I'm just a fan. That's all I am, a fan. Jesus, he's not interested in just fans. You see, fans have this habit of confusing their knowledge and these facts about people, and they think that's intimacy with them, when in reality it's not. What Jesus desires is not fans. He desires followers. He wants family. It's highly relational. 
people who know him, people who know him personally and intimately, the best biblical word for this relational intimacy is the word know. It's in our text. This knowing goes much deeper than just knowing facts and details. The, the Bible first describes it, and when you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, and you see this relationship between Adam and Eve in Genesis 4.1. It says, Adam knew his wife. The word yada, it means to know completely and to be completely known. One Hebrew scholar defines the word as this. He says it's the mingling of souls. It's intimacy. It's deep. It's rich. It's beautiful. That's way more than just intellectual or factual knowledge. But intimate knowledge. That's the knowledge that Christ wants us to have of him. And he of us. You know, Spurgeon said that there are too many that are settling with the wrong knowledge. This is what he writes. He says, How many brothers do we know who are content only to know Christ's historic life? They say, never did a man speak this way. And they confess that never has a man acted with such love as he did. They know all the incidents of his life, from the manger to the cross. But they don't know him. They know the life of Christ, but they don't know Christ, the life. Spurgeon continues, he says, When I begin to know a man's teaching, the next thing that I desire is to know his person. I want to know him. I do care for his actions. My soul would sit down and admire those masterly works of holy art, his miracles of humiliation, of suffering, of patience, and of holy charity. But he says, but far better than that. I love the hands which wrought these master works. I love the lips which spoke these goodly words and the heart which heaved matchless love, which was the cause of it all. Yes, beloved, we must get farther than Emmanuel's achievements, however glorious they are, and we must come to know him. That was Paul's great ambition, to know Christ. It was a deep, abiding relationship that the Apostle Paul wanted to have. And what's fascinating that when Paul writes this book in Philippians, He had been walking with Christ for 30 years. 30 years already. And he still wants more. He's craving more of Christ. Jerry Bridges says, this is the heartbeat of every godly person. You want to know if you're really a godly person or not? You're never satisfied with your present knowledge of Christ. Never satisfied with your present knowledge of Christ. You always yearn for more. You know, when Jess and I were at Masters, uh, one of our very first dates, we hiked up behind the dorms to the cross up on the hill. Uh, One of our very first times getting to know each other. So we're talking, and we get up to the cross, and we prayed together for the very first time. And as she was praying, I was thinking, oh, man, I love this one. Just hearing her heart for the Lord. I wanted to know her. And I remember walking down that hill thinking to myself, Oh, things got to change. i, I got to do whatever I can to spend as much time as I can. When I'm not with her, I want to be on the phone with her. I, I gotta, all the guys want to go hang out and, and play basketball. No, i got to change that around too. And so I started reordering my life. The things that I would say yes to, I was now saying no to. Why? Because I wanted to know her. I wanted her to make her my own. And so we're going on 15 years. My greatest earthly delight is to know my wife. That's the kind of knowledge that Paul has in mind here. 
It's an ever-increasing, ever-expanding, intimate knowledge. Because the more we know Christ, the the more our souls are satisfied, the more happy we are. J.I. Packer tells us that knowing God, it's the sum and the substance of what it means to be made in God's image and what it means to be redeemed by the blood of Christ. He created us, he saved us so that we would know him. We exist to know our Savior. And Paul understood that part of knowing Christ was to know the power of his resurrection. You see that in the text? That I might know the power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection, it's the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. For all of Paul's pre-conversion life, he believed that he had the ability to keep the law, to be a good person. But no matter how hard the apostle tried, he was actually powerless. No power to obey, no power to overcome sin, no power for victory over the flesh. And all of a sudden, on the Damascus Road, Paul comes face to face, literally, with resurrection power. And he meets Jesus there, and his life is forever changed. And he begins to, for the first time, experience what real power is. Christ's resurrection power was working mightily in him. First, it awakened his dead heart. And then it supplied him with the ability to resist sin, the ability to resist temptation, to serve Christ, to overcome trials, to make him strong when he was actually weak. And so he says here, that's the kind of power that I want more of. That's the kind of knowledge of Christ that I want. I want to experience what Christ has to offer. And I just want to tell you, if you feel like you're struggling in your fight against sin, if you're feeling discouraged, downtrodden, you have Christ's resurrection power. You feel like, I can't conquer this. I feel like giving up. I feel like throwing in the towel. Do you realize that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is working in you if you've trusted Christ? You have unlimited power, omnipotent power available to you because Christ offers that to you. What Christian doesn't want to experience more of Christ's resurrection power in his life? Paul wanted to experience that power, but he says secondly here, he says, and may share in his sufferings. And you think, well, wait a second. I kind of like the resurrection power part, but I don't know about all this suffering stuff. I I don't know very many people, do you, who want to add suffering to their lives? But Paul says, I want to share in his his sufferings. So, So what is Paul talking about here? Is he like some sort of just sick weirdo, some sort of masochist who likes what it feels like to suffer? What does he mean when he says, He wants to share in Christ's sufferings. Well, you remember Jesus, he said, you will have tribulation in this world. If they persecuted me, then they're also going to persecute you. And Paul said, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. You want to know how much Paul wanted to know Christ? He was willing to endure everything, anything, even if it meant suffering if it meant that his relationship with Christ would be even sweeter. When you read about the apostles in Acts chapter 5, these guys are beaten up. Do you remember how they responded to get beaten up? They walked away rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ's sake. 
How does that happen? Well, when you suffer with someone, when you enter into someone's pain, there's a binding, there's a connection that happens. We know this. We know people who are suffering right now. And we walk alongside them, it connects our heart with theirs. We start to experience their pain. We carry their burden. And it draws us closer. There's much more intimacy that happens when we live in such a way. And that's what, that's what Paul is saying. He wants to know Christ's suffering because it's going to draw him into a deeper, closer, more intimate relationship with Christ. He even goes so far to say, becoming like him in his death. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and daily, daily, and follow me. Taking up your cross means that you die. Paul wanted so much to become like Christ that he was even prepared to die, to give up his own life. All the persecution, all the suffering, all the pain, all the daily dying to self, all the wasting away in the flesh, Paul says, it's totally worth it. It's totally worth it. Compared to the joy of knowing Jesus my Lord and becoming like him, so trial, suffering, even death, all are worth it, and they're worth it for this one thing. Look at verse 11. So that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He's no longer talking about the resurrection power that we just saw in the previous verse. This isn't power to live for Christ. Paul is referring to being raised on the last day. He longs for the resurrection of the dead, and you ask why. What makes being raised on the last day such a thrilling thought in Paul's mind? Think about this. It's the culmination. Finality. The completion of God's redemptive plan. It's the reversal of the curse. It's the marriage feast. It's the homecoming. It's when our bodies for the first time put on immortality. We're now imperishable. Possessing Christ is the one thing worth giving up everything else for. Jesus is what Paul's heart longed for. That's why he says in chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If you were to die today and you're in Christ, do you realize what kind of gain is yours? Think about it. For the first time, you get to be with God in heaven with no sin, forever. No more hindrances, no more distractions, just pure, unadulterated love and intimacy with the Lord. How sweet is that thought? That's what Paul longed for, being raised up on the last day. You know, as a parent, I hate having my kids have to hear that all good things come to an end. I think I maybe say that too often. And we went to Disneyland for the first time. Kyla, if it was up to Kyla, we'd still be on Buzz Lightyear, just going round and round on Buzz Lightyear ride. Kyla loves Disneyland, but at some point at the end of the night, you've got to say, sweetie pie, it's time to go home. All good things have to come to an end. You'll never, ever hear that in heaven. Never, ever hear that in heaven. You know why? Because all things don't come to an end in heaven. This is really the only happily ever after. When we get to be with Christ in heaven for all of eternity, no longer hindered by sin. That is why Paul longed for the resurrection of the dead. 
He yearned for unhindered fellowship with his Lord, with Christ. So hey, Paul's message to the Philippians, I think it's a much-needed reminder. It's a much-needed reminder for me. We need to be on the lookout for anything that would rob us of our joy in Christ. The knowledge of Christ is supremely valuable. And we're, we'll gladly give up all of our former achievements to gain Christ because he is supremely valuable. We gladly give up all things because he's supremely valuable. We're even willing to suffer, even willing to die, to know Christ because he's our greatest treasure. That is glorious gain. Let us press on. As a church, let us press on as individuals to know him like that. Would you bow your heads with me? I'm just going to give you a couple more words before we close our time in prayer. Just thinking through this text, hearing these words, I need to ask you, is this your desire? Is your desire to know him? To Paul, to live was Christ. The knowledge of Christ was his greatest joy, and his life showed that. So brothers and sisters, is that true of you? Be honest with yourself. Are you, are you cultivating a deeper desire to know him? Are you ordering and structuring your life in such a way that you are constantly being bathed with the knowledge of God? When others look at your life, when your kids look at your life, do they see that knowing Christ is of great value to you? Or do your choices reveal more important desires? Be honest with yourself. What is your life truly displaying as your ultimate prize, as your greatest value? There's glorious fellowship and sweet intimacy that God offers to us through Christ. And so I just want to remind you, man, if you hear God speaking to you today, listen to him. He longs for you to know him. This is exactly why you were created, why Christ came to shed his blood, why his righteousness was given to you through faith so that you would really know him. Do you want more of Christ? I pray that you do.